I don't typically refer to current events uh, in my introductions or even in my illustrations. Uh, I, I do sometimes, but not typically. I prefer to, ref to refer to history long after facts and, and, and truth, the truthfulness of events can be investigated and, and verified. Some of you would be good to do that on social media. But the last 12 months or so have proven to be a treasure trove of cultural mores and sermon fodder. Consider, who would have thought a year ago a worldwide pandemic would begin, brought to the U.S. sometime in December, January, maybe a little earlier? Who would have thought the coronavirus would bring masks as a new fashion accessory and the introduction of a new term, social distancing. Who would have thought by the end of the year we would be told not to gather with family during the holidays? Who would have thought the virus would be implicated in the deaths of over 365,000 Americans and almost 2 million people worldwide? Who would have thought the pandemic would bring lockdowns and economic chaos and instability and online learning with all the associated psychological baggage? Who would have thought the U.S. government would write over $2 trillion in stimulus checks, <laughs> mostly made out to pet projects, from an account already overdrawn $25 trillion? And who would have thought the virus would infect the church of Jesus Christ? Oh, not, not just physically, but relationally and spiritually, and thereby divide the church of Jesus Christ, brothers and sisters in Christ, pointing fingers. Who would have thought the senseless, vile death of a black man in Minneapolis police custody would have sparked national protests, devolving into riots and looting, lasting for months, condemned by the right, promoted by some on the left? Who would have thought the resulting racial chaos would strengthen movements like Antifa, Black Lives Matter, and critical race theory? Who would have thought... <laughs> that part of downtown Seattle would literally be occupied with the expressed purpose of seceding from the Union, as if they could. And then in the ensuing heightened racial challenge, who would have thought that, again, the chaos would infiltrate the church of Jesus Christ with every word of a church leader parsed so that he or she was either overly sensitive to issues of race and oppression or not sensitive enough. Can't quite get it right. Who would have thought that our country would be so politically divided with the rest of the world looking on in amusement? Oh, I, I know we can point fingers at this or the other party, this or that governmental leader. Who would have thought this same year would see the impeachment of a president with another seemingly 
on the way. Who would have thought we'd see in the same year the most hotly contested election in history with accusations of voter irregularity and fraud? Who would have thought the presidency and both houses of Congress would be captured by one political party? I I guess that's not that unusual. But who would have thought the accusations of fraud would devolve into what we saw last Wednesday, January 6th? We call it Epiphany, the day celebrated in church history as the day the kings from the east came to bow at the feet of Jesus. If only our kings would do the same. Both houses of Congress had gathered jointly to certify the election results, a largely ceremonial process, but this time pro-Trump protesters did the rioting, actually storming the hallowed halls of the U.S. Capitol building. Did you ever think that you would see a temporary occupation of that building in your lifetime? Oh, order was quickly restored, arrests were made, and elections certified. This time, interestingly, both sides appropriately condemned the riot. But does the national chaos and the election results indicate this U.S. experiment of a democratic republic is on its way to the trash heap of history? And And if that statement or any others that I have made, trying to be as neutral as possible, if any has bothered you, perhaps, just perhaps, this message is especially for you today. You see, when we speak of the hallowed halls of the U.S. Capitol, we use the same word as our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Is there some confusion there? There are many other questions I could ask, hitting closer to home, I suppose, at least for me. How did we get where we are? What has happened to our world, more our country, most? The evangelical church. The church. Has she become more concerned about political positions than the gospel? And and what happened to evangelical doctrine? In, In its popular rise from the 60s through the 90s, did the evangelical church ever even have a theology, or did attracting the masses become the mission? Sing some songs that sound like you're on the radio listening to your favorite band. Hear a motivational speech. Learn how to apply some principles to live the good life. Is this our best life? Let me remind you of the title of a book that took the church by storm in the 90s as he critiqued the evangelical church. 
a book by David Wells, the title, No Place for Truth, subtitled, Whatever Happened to Evangelical Theology. Or, to quote Carl Truman in his 2020 book that has also taken the evangelical church by storm, the title, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. In the introduction to the book, Truman asks, how did we get here? He asks further, how did the statement, not, not trying to be unnecessarily offensive, just quoting him, how did the statement, I am a man trapped in a woman's body, become normal? Scott asking, how could a sitting U.S. congressman, supposedly also a pastor, end a prayer in the House chamber, a man and a woman? How indeed did we get here? How how did the church get here? Because I would say that many of your social media posts are more political, racial, economic, social, or medical than they are spiritual. How did we get here? Is this the mission of the church to preserve life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness? Are we confused about who we are and what we are to be and to do in the world? Has liberty won? I'm always amazed, even though we go verse by verse through the Bible, at how the biblical text finds the one that we're in for that particular week finds significant current and cultural relevance. The text before us today is familiar to most, but is most appropriate for this morning. Following 2020, following November 3rd, and following last Wednesday. Read it with me. First John chapter 2, verse 15 says, Do not love the world, nor the things that are in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the, 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 the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but it's from the world. Because you see, the world is passing away, and also its lusts. But the one who does the will of God lives forever. It is almost as if I picked picked the text this morning. I did not. It picked us. Regarding this text, one of my commentators said this. It is possible to dismiss John's darkly pessimistic words in this section as parochial, uh, parochial extremism or partisan overreaction to doctrinal or political reversals, in hindsight rather trivial in one or more of churches known to him, especially those in the Western lands, uh, may feel that economic prosperity, political stability, let's pause on that one, material plenty and intellectual refinement can 
combined to make John's warning sound a little gauche, at least as regards their application, their application today. He wrote that in 2008. I suppose it sounds a little more applicable a little over a decade later. And in fairness, the author was speaking tongue-in-cheek because a page later he wrote, it is possible to smile wanly at his apocalyptic-sounding pronouncements, or is it perhaps the case that we are to be pitied to the extent that we have lost John's wistful acuity, clarity regarding life's daily deathliness and barely restrained darkness that seeks to extinguish all true light. We arrive today at the first of only ten imperatives or commands in the book of 1 John. I, I, I say only ten because relatively speaking, that's not very many. He's already given us some tests to ascertain the reality of the Christian faith and then wanting to encourage his, his readers and assure them of their own salvation, he writes somewhat poetically, remember, to my little children, uh, to young men and to fathers, to, to say, your sins have been forgiven you. you, you do know the Father, you have overcome the evil one, and, and you know you have known him who was from since the beginning, but now. The first imperative finally arrives, and not a moment too soon nor too late for us. Hear him say it to you today, my little children. Do not love the world. You see, he's, he's getting ready to, to tell us in verse 19 that the, the false teachers had left the church. They, they did leave to, to pursue their own false spiritual enlightenment and their own sinful behaviors. And some of you can think of people that perhaps even grew up in this church, people who used to be among us who have, who have gone out and you strip it all away and it's typically to follow their own sinful lusts. I'm reminded of Demas. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, who had deserted Paul while Paul is in his final imprisonment facing certain death. Demas deserted, having loved this present world. John gives the command followed by the rationale for the command. Let me give you the outline. It's the command, uh, and then the first reason for the command, and then he explains the command, and then he gives the second reason. We'll take it the command and then the explanation of the command before we go to those two reasons. The, the, the command is, is easy enough. Do not love the world. And now, at, at first glance, that seems a little confusing. I, I thought when Jesus was asked, what is the first and greatest commandment? He replied, love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then he added, the second, the second greatest commandment, if you will, is just like it, love your neighbor as yourself. Now, a few verses earlier, John had told us that one of the tests of the Christian faith is the relational test, love your brothers and sisters in Christ. But Jesus told us, love your neighbor. And, of course, the most famous book uh, verse in the Bible is John 3.16, For God so loved the world, He gave His only begotten Son. Is this a contradiction? Is God allowed to love the world, but we are commanded not to? I mean, didn't Jesus tell us to love the world, at least our neighbors? And, 
And doesn't he get to the point where he actually tells us to love our enemies? I mean, what is John saying here? Very simply. For the believer, there can be but one supreme object of our devotion. You see, to set your heart on the world is to expel God from your heart. Does that... That sounds a little strong, I know. It's what John says. To attempt to love God as a sort of multitasker, you know, dedicating one portion of your love to the world and, and, and then what's left over to God. I said it this way last week, to kind of leave your foot in the church or with God and Sunday for an hour or so and the rest of the time in, in the world, to do that is fruitless. Because it fails to acknowledge God for who He truly is. He is sole, unique, and sovereign, who alone deserves our highest allegiance. My brothers and sisters, do not love the world. We have to define a couple of terms here. It does seem a bit confusing. First is the word world, cosmos, from which we get our word cosmos, and it's the first of incredibly 23 times that the word appears in this letter, six times alone in these three verses. And then, then, then now you, 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 must, you should know that John actually uses that word cosmos in a number of different ways. For example, to refer to the, to the natural world, maybe even in the entire universe, to the world of people, and then also to the fallen world system as they stand opposed to God and His purposes. It's important, you see, we understand that because clearly we are to, to love the people of the world. I mean, the children's Sunday school song got it right, song got it right, red and yellow, black and white, they are precious in His sight. God, uh, Jesus loves the little children of the world, true, and so should we. After all, John already told us that Jesus is the propitiation for the sins of the world. He's later in the same letter going to tell us he's the Savior of the world because he loves the world of people. And so we, too, love people, all, all people created in the image of God. It should be our desire to see them come to faith in Christ with us because we love them. Our motivation, you see, for sharing the gospel goes with Jesus' first and second commandments. First, two reasons. First, we, because we love the Father and His glory, and we love people for whom Jesus died. So, so, so we can and should love the world of people. As for the natural world, we can love that too. We can at least admire it, right? A beautiful sunset, a majestic mountain range, a crystal blue sea, white sandy beaches, come back. The, the Grand Canyon, you, you get the idea. Uh, they, they, they can be awe-inspiring such that we can say we love God's creative nature. We can love that. So clearly, it's the last of the ways I mentioned in which John uses the word cosmos, that we are not to love, that we are to not pine after. It speaks of this fallen world and its sinful, self-absorbed, self-exalting systems which live in opposition to God and His purposes for His creation. They are worldly attitudes or values that are opposed to God. 
Many of my commentators pointed out they do not only hate God, they hate his people. For example, John will speak of the world being under the power of the evil one, such that it speaks of human society under Satan's control. Do not love that, John says, and yet how often are we so easily distracted? One of my commentaries says it this way, don't set your affection on those kinds of things in the world. John Stott, speaking of the world, said, viewed as people, the world must be loved. Viewed as an evil system organized under the dominion of Satan and not of God is not to be loved. Because you see, love is the second word that we need to define. Again, quoting Scott, he suggests the word has different shades of meaning given its object and its motivation. I have said, for example, I can say in, in one sentence, I love mom and I love apple pie. I hope not the same way. Stott writes, in the one, it is the holy love of redemption. In the other, it is the selfish love of participation. I find that incredibly interesting. One, you see, is focused on others and their good, and the other is focused on self, and it is frankly not for our good. The, 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 the first love aims to save the sinner's person. The second aims to share his sin. I want what you have. I want to do what you are doing. One seeks the good of others. The other is focused on pleasure and self-gratification. So one translation has it, don't set your heart on this godless world. But it's so easy, isn't it? Don't pin your hopes and dreams, your passions there. Back to my introduction. To be clear, I was grieved by the events of Wednesday. I have also been grieved by the ongoing rioting and looting, the destruction of business and livelihoods through the summer. I am also grieved by racism and oppression. I am grieved by the vitriolic political divide that lies between us. I am grieved deeply by the now majority party's passionate commitment to slaying babies in the womb. But, but, but wherein does my hope indeed, wherein does my love lie? If these events have been soul-crushing, there may be a problem. Because, you see, we are not to love this world, but to passionately pine after, to long for the return of Christ, whom we love and to whom we declare our soul allegiance, because we understand when He comes, He will make all things right. To not love the world means to not be taken up with this world and all it has to offer instead of seeking God's will and ultimate purposes, which is why Jesus taught us to pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth. Because right now, it is not. Before we look at the two reasons for the command, let's continue with John's definition of the command. He actually says, do not love the world nor the things in the world. What are the things in the world he goes on to tell us in verse 16, for all that is in the world is not 
from, more literally, not of the Father, but from or of the world. We have another of John's stark contrasts. God on the one side and the world epitomized by God-rejecting, self-centered, self-exalting people. And to be clear, it is one or the other and there is no middle ground. It's interesting the way John writes it. It's almost exactly the way Jesus prayed for us in John 17 in his high priestly prayer. I have given them your word and the world has hated them because they are not of, same word, they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Same word in the Greek. The point is this. When, when, when what John tells us are the things of this world are not. All of these things that we're going to talk about, they are not of the Father. They are of the world, this evil world system, and they are things that we should not love, nor desire, nor put our affection upon. It's hard, isn't it? What are they? Three things. First, the lust or the desires of the flesh. The word for desire is used 38 times in the New Testament. All but three of them are negative as it is here. They are desires of the fallen flesh, the human nature apart from God. It's what naturally dead people want. You do understand that people walking around you, all the, they're dead people walking. And it's what they want. It is wanting what this world has to sinfully offer in opposition to what God offers, which is altogether good. The broad range of sinful desires includes typically a list of God's good gifts to us that we then pervert. Lust, greed, gluttony, addictions, sexual immorality, simply to name a few. Second is the lust, again, same word, the desires of the eye. We see it and we want it. Desire, the desire to want is activated by sight. All that is physical that surrounds us, we can see with our eyes and we then begin to covet. The idea is we want it, we set our affection on it more than God and His goodness and all that He graciously gives us. It is never enough. We always want more. What is more, what I can see. Third is the boastful pride of life. That word boastful pride speaks of boastful arrogance. It's something that must be verbally expressed. It's not enough just to be proud. I've got to express it. Express it how? In the things of life. The word for life is not the usual word, but, but, but it's the word from which we get our word biology. It speaks of the physical part of life. It refers to our possessions. Don't miss it. That's why the ESV translated it that way. It refers to our possessions and as a result, our lifestyles, our bank accounts. He uses it again in chapter 3. Whoever has the world's goods, same word, and sees his brother in need. The word goods is the same word as in our verse. It speaks of the world's property. It speaks of its possessions. It speaks of livelihood. And we arrogantly boast about it. 
to sum all of those up, for all that is in the world is sinfully desired by the flesh, sinfully desired by what we see, arrogantly boasted by what we have. We covet, and when we have it, we keep it, we keep it, we keep it, and we boast about having it. Don't love the world. Brings us to the reasons or why John tells us not to love the world. He gives two quick reasons. The first is found at the end of verse 15. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Remember, John speaks in terms of stark contrast, no middle ground. The love of the Father speaks of our love for the Father. John clearly says an either-or proposition. You cannot love the world, that is this fallen world system, and pine after it and love the Father at the same time. They are mutually exclusive, like light and dark. This is entirely convicting because if we were honest much of the time, some of the time, frequently or occasionally, we are drawn away by what this world has to offer. Don't do it. It's a present imperative, by the way. He keep, tells it, keep on not doing it. John says, if this is the character of your life, if the things of this fallen world are more desirous to you than God, then you do not love the Father. No middle ground. And Jesus said the same thing. No one can serve two masters. For either he will hate one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. What do, you, what do you love? What do you dream about? What do you wake up in the middle of the night thinking about? James said it this way, you adulteresses, that's kind of strong. An adulteress is one who is committed to one and sleeps with another. You do not know... Do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Very interesting. In the very next verse in James 4, he says, do you, Or do you think that the Scripture speaks to, to no purpose? He jealously desires the Spirit which He made to dwell in us. Meaning God jealously and rightly desires our soul allegiance and love. He will not share it with another. If you love this fallen world and all it sinfully offers, as John has said in the rest of his letter, you do not know God. Second reason found in verse 17. Despite, listen, listen, despite, as a friend of mine says, despite the full court press of the world, despite the clarion cry of the world, it is passing away. And also its lusts. John had said the same thing earlier. The darkness is passing away. The true light is already shining. All of those things that we love, that we pine for, that we long after, they're, they're passing away. They're temporary. They're temporary. 
They're, they're not eternal. They're like the first car that you owned in a trash heap somewhere. Simply, as Kansas says, dust in the wind. Here one day, offering fulfillment, satisfaction, and happiness, they lie because they're gone the next. Promise of fulfillment and abundance are found to be empty and wanting. But the one who does the will of the Father through the Son, we will find out in chapter 3, pursuing God with everything in you, pursuing His righteousness, will live forever. I'm done. As we close, I am reminded of the parable of the talents as told by Jesus in Matthew chapter 25. You probably know it. Man was going away on a long journey, so he entrusted his possessions to his slaves. I know we like the word servants, but it's actually the word slaves. To, to one he gave five talents, to another two talents, to another one. They were expected, you see, to do something for the master while he was gone because there would come a day that he would return and there would be an accounting. You may remember the master returned and the one who had received five Talents had invested and, and earned five more, and so also the one who had received two. And to these two, the master said, well done, good and faithful slave. You have been faithful over a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy. Enter into the joy of your master, meaning the best is yet to come. It isn't to be found here. Isn't that what we long to hear from our master, from our Lord? Well done, good and faithful servant, slave, son, daughter, child. You have not been distracted by the things of this fallen world. You have served faithfully. Enter into the joy of your master. The old poem says it like this, only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Everything else is ultimately polishing brass on the Titanic. <laughs>